The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Luke Lavolpe. We discuss Luke's progression as a performer from playing gigs in pubs as a 13-year-old to selling out King Tut's in a few hours while still an unsigned artist. Luke explains how he was planning to quit music in 2019 and move to Australia before he opened for Lewis Capaldi at Prince's Street Gardens for the Edinburgh Summer Sessions. And Luke talks about being made a patron of the Music Venue Trust alongside Paul McCartney after he organised Sofathon sing-along in aid of the charity during lockdown. And as always, there's plenty more. Blethered is going to be live with a very special surprise guest at St Luke's in Glasgow on Friday the 26th of November. It's going to be a great night, a great conversation and plenty of laughs. The link to buy tickets is in the episode notes or just search for Blethered Live at St Luke's. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. I think sometimes the best way to find out something about someone is to ignore them and talk about somebody else. Let's talk about your papa. Oh, man. Introduced you to music for a very, very young age. Yep. I've got a whole load of questions because I want to find out how much that impacted your style, yep. your voice, cool. everything. But just talk to me about him. Well, my papa, Dick, Dick Saunders, Richard Saunders, he was a... Uh... He was in the Royal Scots Guards in the army. He played euphonium, which is like a big brass instrument. It's kind of like a tuba, a wee bit, a wee bit weird. And he played in stuff like the tattoo. And he just kind of at a young age got me and all my brothers into music because he'd have like photos of him and his full regalia with the euphonium. We were all totally interested. Uh, my older brother, Jordan, he ended up learning to play the euphonium through, through school. He's now got it. Uh, but I he used to sing in all the, all the bars in Bathgate. Like all the British legions mm-hmm. and pubs, and then I, I just got really interested and wanted to follow in his footsteps. Was it the trumpet you started playing first? Aye. <laughs> That's how how is that as a wee guy? Because it's not the most common thing. It's very uncommon. Oh, you you get you get a lot of people ripped you at school like for playing the trumpet. Like, did but, you care? Nah, I loved it. I really did love it. Me, me and my cousin uh, Emily, she both of us played the trumpet because my papa. His brother as well, Samuel, he was a trumpet player in the same band. So mm-hmm. we were getting lessons at home. But, uh, 
Aye, but it was just for maybe a couple of years and then I kind of dropped out of it. So it was ingrained in you. So I'll tell you what I said yesterday. So I was talking to your manager, Gordon, yesterday. Mm. And I said, and this is a quote, that you sound like 10 different icons rolled into one. I'll take that. Like, now, does that sound, because I mean, there's, there's like a rock sort of ballady mm. sound. There's the rap pack element. I know he sort of introduced you to that. Aye. Similar to me, like my grandpa as well introduced me to that. Although I've not got a musical bone in my body, I can only appreciate it and enjoy it. Is that where then your sound came from? This widely varied mix of tastes or was that a natural thing for you? Well, 100% my papa, he got me into like Sinatra, Dean Martin, like the rack pack, like you say. And then that as I got older, maybe when I was like nine, I remember my older brothers, they played in bands, like indie bands, mm-hmm. growing up. And I always wanted to, like, play the guitar. So I went to like, guitar lessons. And then when I realised you can play a guitar and sing together, and then I seen Johnny Cash for the first time, I was like, what the fuck is this guy? Like, he's just, he was basically like Elvis as well, another one. Just like the most rock and roll guys you can get. So it kind of morphed listening to classical kind of swing singers into rock and roll. Which is strange because they were both at the same time, but they didn't really like each other. There wasn't much a crossover. Uh, but I was in my head, I was like, imagine somebody like Sinatra singing, but with the rock and roll aspect of Johnny mm-hmm. Cash. So that's kind of what I wanted to be for a young age, which is a weird thing for a nine-year-old boy to <laughs> want to be. It is, but I suppose that that is what separates you and sets you apart. I mean, to start playing gigs at the age of 13, now correct me if I'm wrong, were you telling them you were 18 or sneaking in to play these gigs how did that go to be, to be fair I think they all knew we were at two right they knew if you're 13 <laughs> you're not going to be 18 right, I definitely I don't didn't care unless it. you're on steroids I still look 13 right now <laughs> but uh, I think they definitely knew but in Bathgate there was like a good scene in Bathgate like there was like the Attic and mm-hmm. there was guys like me and Lewis Capaldi and the Snuts we were all young and getting in to play these gigs because mm-hmm. we were like the the best in the town at, yeah. at 13, 14, 15. So that was, that's definitely made me a much better musician than what mm-hmm. other people would be when they become 18. I'm not going to ask you to dismantle a very complex socio-cultural phenomenon, but do you have any suggestion or inkling as to why there was such a thriving music scene in a place as small as Bathgate? Well, there was, there was a big venue there, uh, the room at the top. I think it was one of I might be wrong saying this, but I think it was one of the biggest uh, nightclubs in Europe at one point. Right. And there was like big acts would come and play there. Uh, don't ask me who, because I was probably <laughs> not even born when it, was, when it was on the go. But I think for that, that kind of spurred on people like my older brothers. Uh, my brother had a band called The Harringtons and there was a band called Dead Sea Souls. And Bathgate just had a big scene. And people my age growing up were like, we want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. But we're too young to go. So then we started our own wee kind of scene. So it was just, it was a natural kind of progression. It's like a small mining town, so mm-hmm. there's not much else to do other than play music. This might be a complete reach for me, but just the way I know how how the human psyche works. Because there was these other young musicians starting out, did you see them get a wee gig? And this could, this could apply to everybody. Do you mm-hmm. think you also each other get a wee gig, work hard, develop? Did Would that then spur everybody else on it and sort of... In, in a, in a friendly competition with each other? Def, I definitely think a lot of people view view it as competition, but I think in the, the scene that we were in, I think it's more like a, it's like everybody would help each other. Mm-hmm. So if like you got, say I got a headline gig in a place, 
Yeah. All the other people would support you. And then the next week they'd be headlining somewhere and then you'd support them. So it was mm-hmm. kind of like everybody was helping each other. I like that because in so many aspects of life and, and work and different industries, particularly entertainment in any facet, I think everybody feels as if there's only enough to go around for one when in fact there's enough for everybody. Oh, one person can't do everything. Yep. Um, there was something I was going to ask you there. I know that's that was something I was going to mention, sorry, when you said about artists coming to play in this venue and don't ask me to name them. See the old Odeon in Renfield Street? Yep. Which is now offices, which is just somebody should go to prison for that, the fact that that Aye. was dismantled. I'm history, feeling about that. History, Total so, history. Yeah. But everybody always talks about, it's like the, you mentioned the Odeon, the, like the older generation, they'll go, oh, do you know who played there? In the early 60s, Roy Orbison. You're like, wow, man. that's amazing. Right. Well, guess what I found out? Guess who supported Roy Orbison that night? Yeah. The Beatles. I feel like that is far more significant. I, I love Roy Orbison. Who's, who's Roy Orbison? I know. Man. That is far more significant. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, what are you that's, talking about? That's insane. It's kind of like saying, I don't know, uh, Peter Andre played a place in Glasgow one night. Do you know who supported them? Who? Uh, Oasis. You're like, uh, what? I feel like that's far more significant. That's crazy. No disrespect to Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison dead. Who knows? Oh, well, he's hardly listening to enemy. He's not going to say it. Um, so you start start playing those gigs around about 13. When, at what point does it become more serious where you think this is, because we'll talk about nearly chucking it, mm-hmm. but at what point do you start going, this is something real, this is something that I can I can really make something out of, or was it for the enjoyment all the way through? Uh, I think since I was <clears throat> maybe, but since I was 13, I thought I was going to be a singer. I mm-hmm. thought that was going to be my job, which is mental, but all the way through school and that I would I would always I would pick subjects to feed into being a musician like mm-hmm. and I was interested in subjects such as like English and music were the two main I think they were the only thing I got grades in but I don't know I think for a young age I've always known I wanted to do it when it changed maybe when you become like you leave school and you're 18 I was I was working in warehouses like just to get by but I always knew that the end goal was to mm-hmm. be a musician and do it but it changed, the game changed when I supported Lewis in Princess Street. You were going to move to Australia prior to that? Or so had you decided you were kind of havering ba- about doing it? Basically my girlfriend had said she was going to Australia mm-hmm. and I had a choice whether to go or not. <clears throat> so I, I was kind of on the fence with it and I wasn't making a lot of money working this warehouse. Mm-hmm. And then a, a string of gigs came up where it was, I was supporting Tom Grennan, Lewis, and there was another one. And I th- like... I thought they were going to be the last gigs I was going to take whatever money I had and try and get to Australia. But once I played them, it was a different story because I just knew I was chucking away like a big opportunity. Mm-hmm. I like that, I suppose that goes back to the point you just said about coming through, helping each other. I believe you and, this isn't an interview about Lewis Capaldi, but it has to be Love mentioned. Um, he, 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 You had both said when you were younger, yep. right? If one get if I get there first, I'll take you with me. And it's, it's nice that he... He's he fucked his stuck well, to eh? that, eh? Definitely. I'm sure you would have done the exact same for him. You're, you're saying that you're like, he's at, if anybody's listening, looks actually shaking his head in his mouth. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> One thing I was quite interested in, uh, as I saw, or you just mentioned there, that you, you chucked your job to, to go and play the gig. Aye. That to me shows a real belief because it's, you know, anything could have happened. Let's just, we'll put it this way. We never thought COVID would happen. 
So there yeah. is a possibility that the gig could have been rained off or called off. Exactly. And it didn't happen. It was definitely definitely a big leap of faith, but it was it was merely day we just like I felt like I was in that job when I was stuck there. Mm-hmm. And then when when I got told you I was never the time off to go play these gigs, I was kinda like what am I doing in my life here? Aye, Why what, am I working for these people? Why would they not give you the time off? What's that all about? Surely you could have just done a shift elsewhere. It was just a, it was just a, it was a massive warehouse that was constantly churning out stuff all day and you're mm-hmm. like basically unloading lorries all day. And if they're a man doing, then everything gets kind of fucked up. Mm-hmm. So I understand it, but at the same time, it's pretty wild. Is that, was it that gig that you met Gordon Duncan? It was, I. Well, it was actually, the week before I applied to play at a competition, I applied to play with Tom Grennan. Mm-hmm. So it was a competition to get it and I ended up getting it. Nice. And Gordon had actually, he's like the PR guy for acts such as Lewis and Tom and mm-hmm. he had actually went back and listened to the the entries because I wasn't picked and he heard me, picked me through that and then I met him the night of Tom Grennan. Mm-hmm. Kind of had a conversation and then it was actually after the Lewis Capaldi gig, speaking to Gordon and then we went to the after party and I've got to make uh, Conor McGrotty. Grotty gets called. He's a wild man. <laughs> but uh, I was kind of standing in the bar and I seen Gordon stand at the bar and my mate Grotty's got him in a heat lock. <laughs> I'm like, what? What's going on there? So I, w- I walk in, I'm like, Wait. I'm saying, what are you doing? And he's saying to Gordon, you need to be his manager. You need to be his manager. And I'm like, Grotty, he's not even a manager. He's a PR guy. Mm-hmm. So Gordon's like, everything's fine. And that chatted away. And then the next day I got a phone call. Gordon's like, I want to be your manager. I phone Grotty, I was like, what the fuck did you say to him? Are you friend? <laughs> <laughs> but it worked, so. Ah, you've got him to thank. Ah. Does that, how much does that help take things to the next level? Because you're a performer, you know, you're a, you're a musician, and that side of the business is, you know, it's fundamental to anybody's progress. Does ah. that take it, a weight off your shoulders? 100%, because you're no, you're then just focused on your, your performance side of it. But mm. I think I'm still involved in a lot of the stuff like planning and, the approach we're taking, but so far, obviously, there's no label involved. It's just me and Gordon that are doing everything. And we're doing quite well doing it, so he's he's definitely taking me totally to the next level. Doing quite well as an unsigned artist is an understatement and a half. You oh, sold cheers. out King Tuts in just a few hours. Aye. But, Still no play that. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about that. There's, uh, if anybody's listening, they're wondering why. You might have heard there's been some shit going on for the last 18 months, <laughs> which probably... Um, Put the spanner on the works there, but we'll talk about that. I loved hearing you say you, you got on a train heading back up the road to, to a writing session down south, and by the time you got off the train, it was done. Aye, eh? right, sold out. I was I was acting the I was doing in London writing with a guy, and we put King Tuts up, and I was acting the big man on Instagram. And I was like, I'm selling the suit in a day. Like, I was just testing the water. Like, I'm so confident I'm going to sell the suit. Just on the bam up, and then got off the train and was sold it. Did you did you believe that you would have sold it out in a day? Less than a day. To be fair, halfway up the train journey, I got told that half the tickets were away and I was like, this actually mm. might be possible. Because it is only 300 people or whatever it is. I mean, you say it's only 300 people, but it's 300 people who are committing their money and, and their time to come and see somebody who, with all due respect at that point, was unproven. Ah, exactly. To yeah. an extent. So they obviously believed in you. I think, I feel like, your trajectory as an observer a massive music fan and somebody who does know his music for me as an observer your trajectory right now is very formulaic in that you're going through the milestones that anybody who has overnight success yeah and i say that in air quotes 
has, you know, you, you sell that out. It's not just that your pals are chipping in and going, oh, we better get this wee dick's ticket sold <laughs> just so it's the same face. These are people yep. that are committing to you. And when you've got that solid core fan base, they're the early adopters of people there at the start. And they'll probably then look down on the thousands and the millions that yep. then go on to become a fan. That's how I see that. That's how I see this playing out like, for you. I think before before we announced the King Tuts gig, we we have played King Tuts a few times before, mm. and there was once before a couple of years ago. Now we had put it up for sale, and it did. It got to three tickets of selling it on the, the night. Nice, but we never got it. The, the sold out sticker on. Aye. So I remember saying, "I want to play that again." Mm-hmm. And sell it out. I want that because you get a, you get a there's a infamous bottle of whiskey you get for the King Tuts if you sell, if you sell it. it right. So I was like, I've thought about that whiskey every day since <laughs> I've never had that. Do that you know when you get to reschedule it? Is it a wee bit up in the air because of the rescheduling? So I think it'll be it'll, by the time this podcast goes out, we'll have played it. I think mm. so. It'll be third of September. We're playing it. All right. Okay. And um, you've got another gig. Coming up, quite a significant one. Yeah, How just much? a wee one. Just a wee, just a wee small one at one of Glasgow's most iconic venues. Um, tell me about that. So I've played in St Luke's. Um, pretty, pretty apt being Luke. Yes, we've all played at St Luke's. So I've I've been, I've played it before. Obviously, the Tom Grenning gig. I played it, mm-hmm. and it's one of my favourite venues. This it's time just, it's yours. Uh, it's mine. It's pretty wild because it's it's quite strange when you play venues like that because you know, in my head, I'm still a wee boy trying. Become mm. a famous musician that's going to leave a legacy for everyone. Mm-hmm. But when you when you stop and you see you're playing, it looks like you're already. I'm in the, the middle of making, yeah, the legacy. And Absolutely. I'm, sometimes you you get caught up and you don't realise you're actually in the middle of doing it. You know what I mean? That's it. I think when you when it's only when you look back in retrospect, especially when you're younger. I'm not for a second patronising you, uh-huh. but when you are younger and it's all kind kind of coming, you can kind of partly you just go with the flow, which is great. Maybe in a year, two or five, you look back and go, wow, that really was significant when you see mm-hmm. how difficult it is for other people to do it. Um, this conversation is not about me, but I probably shouldn't miss the opportunity to say I've also got a show at St. Luke's, yeah. 26th of November. So I'll, uh, I'll go to yours if you come to mind. Uh, <laughs> deal. I'll, I'll put two tickets in the door for you. Deal. Your band... This is this is the same band you started off with, isn't it? When you were about thirteen. Yep. How do they feel about it? Because the great musicians they may be, they're reliant on your profile as well to a degree. Yep. I don't mean that in any disrespectful way. Are they are they just buzzing to be, to oh, be on this journey? Hundred percent. The guys I play with, Kobe Yuski, they're a bit older than me. They're uh, thirty thirty two. I think they're. They've played in bands other days, and they've obviously. It's their dream to become musicians as well, and mm-hmm. this is now coming to fruition. Yeah, and uh, Ben and Kieran, the other two, they're they're just they're all great musicians, and we've all worked really hard for to get this. Mm-hmm. And it'd be a shame if we never got it because we put the hours in, and we're, we're willing to do the stuff that other people are only willing to do. Yeah, to get it. No, I think you give too much away, but if you get your set list already, aye, are we going to hear "Terribly Beautiful"? "Terribly Beautiful" will be the last song in Mate. every set. So there's there's some songs that you hear, right, and it proper stops you in your tracks. Mm-hmm. Dead in the Water, have you heard that by No Gallagher when he was, Aye. He was just kind of jamming and they've ended up catching it? That's one that catches me, and Terribly Beautiful is another one. Yeah, that, I'll take that, comparison. Like. I mean, it proper, like, really stops in my tracks. I think, lyrically sublime and melodically sublime. Um, if I'd just heard the tune, I would love it, but I absolutely love the words. And I'm quite fascinated by your songwriting. And I've heard you saying before that 
sometimes you just sit and have conversations for a couple of hours and then pick things out of that. That's I've I've never heard of that before. Well, that was amazing. That was a guy, Ian Archer. So he he was a guitarist at Snow Patrol. I went, he asked me to go down and write a song with him down in Brighton. Well, I'd done maybe 10 songs of him. Mm-hmm. But I went down and met him at Brighton Beach. He was like, meet me at the beach. And I went down and he's, I couldn't see him. And I was looking and I looked in the water and there's a guy like that. He's in the water <laughs> in the backstroke. I'm like, fuck it. This is the guy I'm writing the songs with. So he went up to his house. And we go in and he's, he's taking the wetsuit off and he's got changed and he's, we're sitting. And we spoke for maybe three years and I was like, this guy, he's like, so he wrote like Jake Bugg's album. Right. And then, uh, James Bay. Wow, love James Bay. Brilliant. His guitar was sitting on the wall. Wow. Who else's guitar was it? It was Boy for Radiohead's guitar sitting there and I'm like, this is, he's like the first proper big songwriter I wrote with. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so we're sitting talking for three years and I'm kind of like, what's happening here? Am I writing a song? Like, I feel like I'm wasting time. And then he hit, like we spoke about, just kind of like this, we spoke about all my life and everything. Mm-hmm. And then he hit the space bar and he was like, I've just recorded that full conversation. I was going in depth about my family, about my papa, and, mm-hmm. and then just we went back and we we're just taking sentences, lifting them out. He was like, "Right, we'll use that sentence and we'll start a song with that." Love it. I mean, it was amazing. It was that's like, that's really profound because that is coming from. It's the I'm, most honest, honest form of songwriting. Yeah, it's my do, word. Do you feel then when when those words are there and they obviously resonate so deeply with you because they came from deep within you? Yeah, probably thinking you're speaking in confidence. Do you when when you sing that, and the noise can sound like. Very, very, and kind of pseudo intellectual, but do you feel that it just comes out in a far more meaningful way when you do sing it? 100%. Because that taught me when you done that, that taught me don't be like afraid or shy to just say mm-hmm. exactly what you mean. Because there's no point in trying to like dress up what you're saying, just say it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That'll hit harder, that'll hit home harder than anybody. Talk, speaking of just saying things and, and coming out with it and being honest, Uh-oh. so. We've you no this is this is perfectly um perfectly positive, don't worry. I'm trying to think how best to frame this to mention him. So we've got a mutual pal, Craig Johnston. Right, eh? He presented you with an award of sorts. You collected it for oh, Lewis Capaldi. I crashed see that Scottish music awards, I crashed it halfway through. Basically I did as well, to be honest. I wasn't meant to be there. So when you were on, you said, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said to the effect of, by the way, I'll be coming back for this award next yep. year. And lo and behold. You were you were um, nominated for it. How did that feel? Did did you really believe that when you said that, or were you ten vodkas in? I no. Well, I got obviously Gordon is Lewis's PR guy, and he asked me, "Do you want to?" Him and Lewis both asked me, "Do you want to go and collect Lewis's awards from?" Mm-hmm. And I was kind of thinking, "No, really, because it's not my award." Mm-hmm. Like, why? I'd, this kind of started off the full Lewis Capaldi's pal part. Every, like, I'm trying. I'm I'm, be, I'm. I'm not even touching it. To be honest, I feel as if you deserve far more respect for that. As an You're artist. allowed to. Like, it's a great thing for me. No, it is great, but I just feel that the, the focus should be on you. I think right. it's. I think it's lazy interviewing. To be honest, and and while he's your mate and you're delighted for him, and there's no malice. I think it is also disrespectful. I think you deserve far more respect. It's a, it's a blessing and it's a curse. Mm-hmm. But uh, so he asked me to go collect it, and I was just like, and my head was like, this is a perfect opportunity be in front of some of the biggest people in Scottish music mm-hmm. and to say what I say. So I was absolutely shit my pants going up, to be honest, because <laughs> I was like, I need to make a good impression here. So I said a wee bit about Lewis and how he really appreciated the awards. He appreciated it that much that he never came again. <laughs> but... <laughs> Where was he? <laughs> I think he was, yeah, he was really unwell, apparently. But uh, nah, I just took the time to say, I'll be back. I'm coming for the award. Because mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of 
like I envisage a lot of things in my head before they happen. Yeah. Getting getting their word in. I must have planted the right seed because it worked. I'm a firm believer in the power of visualization, not just in the sense that people think if you visualize something, then it will cause a law of attraction to bring it to you without yep. taking any steps. But I mean, there's that suppose you can if you want to go really deep into it, you could argue that you put yourself into a vibration when you bring about the circumstances, people and opportunities to make that happen. But also think when it's in your head, then you will just naturally then start to work towards that's, it and move that's, towards it. That's why I, I, I don't believe there's some kind of magic pull in the universe that you say something and it yeah. comes magically true. It's you basically brainwashing yourself. Yeah, you're, fi- you're fine-tuning your own behaviours, aren't you, exactly, and your own yeah. habits. Um the Scottish Music Awards, for anybody that doesn't know, it's a key fundraising event for Nordoff Robbins, which is a UK charity providing music therapy therapy, sorry, to people affected by life limit and illness, isolation and disability. Mm-hmm. How important is that charity and that cause to you in terms of relation to, to your papa? Uh, hugely unbelievable. It's because obviously when my papa passed away this year. Um really which that's uh, so good, man. But the thing that and it pissed me off the mace with the coronavirus thing is I missed the last year of his life because mm. he had to get shut in, obviously, because he was an older person. But he, he had Alzheimer's and it got progressively worse during lockdown because he wasn't getting stimulated by mm. other people, you know what I mean? Which yeah. is, you can argue he would have been, he would have got worse anyway, but I think it got accelerated due yeah, to totally the lockdown. Because you'd be like, Eventually, towards the end of his life, I did start going to see him. I was like, if he's going to die, I may as well go see him. So, but you'd go down, he'd be like, his head would be away. He would be making up these mad stories about seeing stuff and everything. But then you'd play a record for 1960 or something. It'd just be like, back, straight back to normal. Back in the room. Crazy. I um, I had no specific knowledge of that concept of music, but it's, um, choose my words carefully. It's it's that the condition is something that I've have been exposed to as well, mm. and I find that both when you talk about um, just stories for the past, it just links these neurological pathways. But when it's music, you're in the back, and it is absolutely staggering. And it's almost astounding. like a it's like if you taste a dinner that you had a couple of years ago or something, you know what I mean? It brings you back to that moment. It's yeah. like the same sense as you're hearing. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's like the last thing that goes is being able to listen to music and remember, which is crazy, man. There's something really m- melancholic and poetic about that, isn't there? Aye. And it just, it shows you the power of music. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible charity and it's one that I love to see, to see being supported. Um, I suppose we need to talk Sorry, I hate lockdown. Right, right I hate bullet. COVID part of I, but we need to because it did happen and yep. it was for a long time. But there was a lot of positivity that came out. Um, yep. for, for your point, I mean, first of all, so you began working with other songwriters, Dave Nelson, who's worked with Paul Nettini quite yep. frequently, Kyle Faulkner. I believe that's what Terribly Beautiful uh, That was a That's a great story, that one. Like, um, Let's hear that. Basically, I've done a, a thing called Sofathon Sing Along, which was like, Yes, aye. I've got, I've got, I've got. I've, We'll go into that first then, let's talk right, okay. about that. So it was basically like, it was the first week of lockdown, I was basically saying to my manager, I'm the type of person who needs to be kept busy. Yeah. If I'm not kept busy, I go insane or I go on a bender or I go, like, you know what I mean? I go, I just need to be. It's like talking to myself here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you really, you need to be, like, I need, uh, what's the word for it? I don't know. I need to be regimented and dancer. Yeah. 
So we came up with the idea of Silverthorne Singalong, which was like a festival for your couch. Everybody mm-hmm. kind of tunes in. Everybody gets a time slot over 24 hours yeah. and they play for half an hour or an hour or whatever. So we had like, it was something mental. I mean, maybe it, it was, was over, over It was over 100. Katie Tunstall was involved as mental. well. It's kind of just, it, it was like a virus. <laughs> just yeah. like, it multiplied and everybody was involved. By the time I knew it, I was like, fuck. Like, too much what, have shit, what have I done here? I'd like boys, I remember somebody's mum texting me, or messaging me saying, my son's playing at four o'clock in the morning, he's only 14, <laughs> he's got school in the morning. I was like, <laughs> Sounds like a you problem then. <laughs> well, he better, he better have his Weetabix and he gets up. <laughs> but, uh, aye, so then through that, Kyle then got on board and I've supported Kyle a few times when I was younger, when I was like 15, I supported him. And, mm. But then I kind of messaged him after he set, it was just like me, sounding tremendous. And then he just replied straight away, I've got a song, I've got a song that you could sing. And I was like, all right. So he sent me, it was basically, like a, it was a verse and a chorus. It was very, it was very different to what Terrible Beautiful is now. But I'm pretty sure he said it was something that his daughter had been singing. Right. And his daughter, I think she's like five year old or something. Wow. She'd been, just been singing a random. Bit spooky. I know. Very good. Um, but back to you. What, what I loved, um, I thought this was really cool. You probably could have yeah, foreseen this. After all, organising the Sofathon, Sing Along and Eddie the Music Venue Trust, they made you a patron. Pa- Paul McCartney's a patron. That is wild that is, while we're on the Beatles. That is mental. I, I remember it was Gordon actually texted me, or, or phoned me, saying hey, they want to meet a patron. I was like, what does that mean? I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> so then I, I looked at all the other patrons, Paul McCartney, and like you say, hundreds of ridiculous people. It's just like, why? Like, he kind of had the, the imposter syndrome. I was mm-hmm. like, I don't deserve this. To be fair, all I was trying to do for, through this overthought thing was I know a lot of people were going to be down with the lockdown happening. Cause yeah. I, I had big stuff planned. I know a lot of other artists had big stuff planned. Mm-hmm. And I was like, these people are going to be depressed. They're going to, they need some kind of outlet. Yeah. They're very altruistic of you. The, um, have you found, I think this happened to a lot of people. And if I have to preface this comment and I suppose this question by unequivocally stating that I'm not downplaying the, the hurt sadness and the misery that the pandemic caused mm-hmm. but within that there is a glimmer of positivity and yeah. that it gave us all the chance to sort of realign our priorities and, and yeah. kind of what we value in life and also to sort of reinvigorate our passions do you feel that coming off the back of that now the world is opening you feel even more energized and motivated to just go mm-hmm. after what you're wanting 100% I think it was one of the worst things that's happened to me yeah but at the same time, it's kind of a blessing because we had all this momentum before the lockdown. And then, obviously, lockdown happened. It fell down. Then we done the Silverthorn thing. Then I released a, the Terribly Beautiful EP and one of the tunes, Dead Man's Blues, went to number one in Scotland. Incredible. And then it kind of, for there, I, that's when I kind of started thinking, this could actually be a, pro- this could be the, the best thing that's ever happened here. Because I've now got, I've got time to write, I've wrote about maybe 25 songs during lockdown. And now when we're playing this King Tut's gig, there's going to be people coming to see us that are interested in mm-hmm. what we're doing. And I'd rather they've seen us now than before lockdown because I've got, my tunes are about a hundred times better now. Yeah, no, I, I totally get you. Um, this again, I'm very consciously aware of this isn't about me, but me and you are having a conversation exactly, and, yeah. and that's how I feel. Like if you came to me and said, right, we can go back to March 2020 and none of this would have ever happened, I'd be like, no, because oh. the way my work has gone and the way things have gone, I'm like... It changes you as a person as well. It makes, Absolutely. Just yeah. like you say, it makes you prioritise things and it makes you 
realise the stuff you've taken for granted. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, you shouldn't take for granted being able to have a coffee, a real mug, and being able to mm-hmm. sit in the cafe, but <laughs> we kind of did. It's it? mental, that's the small things. Aye, it? It, it started off with me saying like, oh, I can't wait to go on holiday again. I'll, I'll like go to the football again. And then it ended up being whittled down to, I can't wait to be able to just have my McDonald's inside the restaurant. <laughs> um, here's one for you. Oh, here we go. Oh, demanda. Parli italiano or no? I don't speak any Italian. Right, so. okay. So, la volpe means this fox is... in Italian. Let's talk to how, where does this come from? So. And by the way, for for you Luddites that are not a bilingual, I was saying I have a question. Do you speak Italian? To which the answer is no. See, I knew what you said. Well done. So you do speak Italian? No, no, no. Not at all. This is the, so la volpe is the fox, mm-hmm. but... It's a very, it makes me sound insane when I tell a story. Like no, no, I like it. I have heard it, but I'll let you tell it again. <laughs> Basically, there's so, so many arms and legs to this, but. Yeah. Well, t- talk about, t- tell me then, because the way I'd like you to frame it, if you don't mind, is your fascination. Mm-hmm. And then take me back to what your mum discovered in right, primary okay, one. Yeah, right. So ba- basically, I have highlighted foxes in my brain. That's the way I describe it. So. Yeah. Like, I feel like every time I see a fox, whether it's in, like, a painting or, like, a doormat or maybe even if I see an actual fox run across the road, mm-hmm. it always seems to happen to me when I'm in a kind of, a place where I need to see it and I need a bit of good luck or whatever. So yeah. I've, I've treated it as, like, a good luck symbol or, like, a, a thing that I'm on the right path. So I thought, my, well, my real name is Luke Gibson. Yeah. And I thought, at one point, I was like, I need to change my name. And I was actually playing a game. This is when I was a lot younger. I was playing a game, Assassin's Creed, right? And it's all like Italian. It's in, I can't remember where it's Florence or something. Aye. But uh, there's a guy in it called Lovolpe. And he's like Master of Thieves. And I was just like, well, I wonder what that means. I Googled it and it said the fox. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, this is quite freaky. So um, a couple of years later, I'd, I'd be telling somebody about this. Like one of my mates, and they're like, you're not really need, man. And we walked into his house and there was a fox in the doormat. I was like, tell you. So, <laughs> so it's like, it would always come at the most weird times. But then, so I caught myself of Opie and I thought, because Italian, Italian singers are always the best singers. So I thought, let's make it Italian. So, uh, and then <laughs> the weirdest thing happened, that was, I think it was this year. This is, this has went on for years, like hundreds of, hundreds of occasions you've seen the fox. And then my mum had this big box of all my stuff primary school like she'd kept like pictures and drawings and that and you know like in primary school when you've got your coat hanger yep. at the start and it's got some kind of animal on it mm-hmm. mine in primary one was the fox I think that and I really think that's, that's obviously ingrained in my brain since I was a wee boy it's like a sort of subconscious manifestation of the bad or mind phenomenon Aye, and exactly. it's, it's like it's, it's been imprinted in your brain you start to see it but the fact that you then see it in these places I believe in these wee things mm-hmm. and I think there's um there's far more to existence than meets the eye. Oh, and definitely. And if that, if you, I've Googled it, like what, like sometimes I'm up three o'clock in the morning, I'm like, what does it mean? If you see foxes everywhere. <laughs> what does <laughs> so it mean? Like a, there's like a Chinese proverb thing about the, the fox. If you right, see okay. the fox everywhere, it's just a bit of animal. It's, you're on the right path when you see the fox. But if you see the white fox, that's your omen. Like you're, you're coming to your end. So every time David Atten oh. on, Get it the turned Arctic off. Fox comes on. I'm like, ah, fuck. <laughs> Get that, fuck. <laughs> I never see that. You like that meme of the wee guy with the spins over his eyes, blocking out the hairs. <laughs> I think the greatest World Cup song there's ever been no. is "We Have a Dream." 
mm-hmm. and you you sang it again. So this is for the Euros with John Gordon Sinclair. Aye. How does that come about? And sure, it is the best World Cup song has ever been. It is. Um, it kind of came about. Obviously, the view for the terrace does football songs. Like they ask bands to do like a yeah. football song the team support, and like. I support Aberdeen, so I've not got. Really, I've not really got much to sing about. <laughs> Hold on a minute. How does that? Your your dad's from Aberdeen. My dad's from Aberdeen. Is that why? Aye, no choice in the matter. A bastard, imagine no, putting that burden on you. a lot of pressure, isn't it? But, <laughs> so they came to me and said, "Do you want to sing an Aberdeen song?" And I was like, "No, really, because there's no many good Aberdeen <laughs> what songs." What is it? Stand free. Stand free, wherever you may be. I think it's going. We are the famous Aberdeen. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> but uh, so I was like, I seen that Scotland obviously were close to qualifying into the, the Euros and I was mm-hmm. like, we'll sing a Scotland song. So, Gordon came to me with uh, We Have a Dream and was like, well, how about you a rendition of this? I kind of listened to it, it's a great song, but I was like, how the fuck am I going to, am I going to emulate that mm-hmm. in my style? So I just sat one day and I, we took all the be- I took all the best lyrics in it and then I made a kind of chord progression and then played it. And just in the house and I was like, right, that'll do. And I turned up in the day away me and my piano player, Kieran, and the boys for the Chili Papers came. Wow. And we had n- we'd never played it together. And we just were like, oh, let's go, we'll just try it. And we played it one take, bang, that was it, recorded. That's amazing. But I was kind of, I didn't, I didn't want to say this, but I didn't want to be known as like the, the Scotland anthem guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's a great thing to be known as, but I want to. You want to box yourself in like that. Exactly. So you didn't want to be that, but. Was it well received though? Well, there was some, there was some really good comments. Folk, folk loved it, but there was a lot of people that hated it. Why? But, what could you? What is there to hate? Because like, the folk were like, "Don't eh, tarnish an original song." Or that. But fuck I, up, mate. mate it's hardly nothing, like "Let It Be" by the Beatles. There is nothing that makes me happier when somebody tries to give me like hatred. Does it? Does it spur you on? Man, I lo- absolutely love it. There was like, what was the one? There was one that made me laugh so much. It was like great rendition. So it, there's a bit in it where I'm like, McGinn that usually takes some. He's handing the ball to me like hits the penalty. So I, I'd just been watching Scotland and McGinn hit a penalty, right? And then I seen on the comments, yeah, it was like great rendition, mate, but McGinn does not hit our penalties. <laughs> <laughs> Who does hit I the don't penalties? Know. I still don't know. It's different every time, isn't it? Mm, I hope usually, it's usually as a, a designated taker. Do you ever get, is there any comments that stick out? Like, I don't want, I'd like to focus on pelters, but I suppose it's part of the makeup of the story. I get a lot, a lot of stuff, folk like, because my voice is so different to what I look like and okay, like, oh, that's a fake voice and everything. But fuck off. But I, I, I love it. I've got I've got I've got two older brothers and a younger brother and they're mad mad as brushes and they see the comments and they're like, I'm gonna fucking say uh, something. I'm like, Danny, just I was talking about think, one. I think how sad you've got to be to take time of your life to Exactly. It's it's just projection in it. It's somebody instead of having the wherewithal or the ability to elevate themselves, they'd rather bring somebody down to their level. I get a belter a while back. Still fucking winds me up, but I get called a terracotta attention seeker. <laughs> and I was like, right, I am fucking uh, many things. Terracotta, yes. I, <laughs> I, I, I ain't an attention seeker, and it's actually just bronze and you're jealous, right? So piss off, man. Hey, you look well. Hi. Um, you jokingly, more importantly, jokingly, but boastfully declared um, ahead of your King Tut's ticket scoring sale that you were. You were coming to take scalps. Yep, that's my favourite thing. What are the scalps that you uh, that you're looking to take over the, the next twelve months? It's the friendliest way possible. I mean, taking scalps, like aye, it's, it's very much said jokingly. Aye, 
But what scalps are in your sleep? Louis Capaldi's scalp is the one I want this. You had it here first. Luke Lavolpe, uh, here, I'll write the headline for you, right? Luke Lavolpe slams... Scalps his pal. Louis Capaldi. <laughs> nah, I, like, uh, claiming a scalps, like, playing a place like... Yeah. Playing a place like King Tut's a scalp for me, St. Luke's a scalp, transmit a scalp. That is just, a, that's a, a collection of scalps aye. that's doing transmit. Well, I hope huge. to look back one day and I've just got, like, a array different size scalps mm. sitting. I've absolutely zero doubt that you'll be taking multiple as, as the months roll on. I'm really looking forward to seeing you. I'm very grateful that you've came here for, nah, cheers, man. for this chat. Thanks very much, mate, for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. In St. Luke's, 16th of December. Yes, get your tickets. And when are you playing then? Uh, 26th of November, mm. Friday. Cheers. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School, all on The Big Light. Scotland's Podcast Network. From the Big Light Studio.